1: This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, What on Earth listeners, it's Laura Lynch. I'm hosting The Current, and we did a segment on the new international panel on climate change. report. spoke to two climate scientists, and I thought you might like to have a listen, so here it is. (music) Code Red. A wake-up call. A stark reminder that time is running out. A new report on climate change is being called all of those things. The sixth report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is the most comprehensive look at the state of our planet since 2013. What it says isn't good. It was written by hundreds of the world's leading scientists and signed off on by 195 national governments, including Canada. The report was released on Monday against the backdrop of a summer of record-breaking heatwaves, catastrophic flash flooding, and unprecedented wildfires. It places the blame squarely and unequivocally on humanity and the emission of greenhouse gases. But it's also clear there's still time to rise to the occasion and keep our planet livable. I'm joined by Simon Lewis, a professor of global change science at University College London, and Catherine Hayhoe. She's an atmospheric scientist, a professor in the Department of Political Science at Texas Tech University, and the Chief Scientist of the Nature Conservancy. Good morning to both of you. Good morning. Morning. Simon Lewis, I'll start with you. What was your reaction when you read the report?
0: Uh, For those of us who've been watching the science carefully, there aren't any big surprises. But what we see in the report is everything with more clarity, because we have Eight years more data of increasing carbon emissions, eight years more data of climate impacts. So scientists can now really join all the dots from fossil fuel emissions to rising atmospheric carbon dioxide concentrations to warmer temperatures and then these climate impacts that we've been seeing in the news.
1: And Catherine Hayhoe, what was your reaction?
2: I was not surprised either because we have known that climate was changing and humans are responsible for decades. The news was not new. What was new was the clarity and the urgency. There is no equivocation, no uncertainty to hide behind. It's real, it's us, and the time to act is now.
1: We've heard that before, though, Catherine Hayhoe. What, what makes this different from previous times, previous reports? Well, we have heard that before. And so this report
2: presents the updated data. As Simon said, we have eight more years of data showing that not only that temperatures are rising, ice is melting, and sea levels are increasing, but also we now have information on how much more likely climate change has made specific events. Like the Western heat wave was at least 150 times more likely because of climate change. We know that with Hurricane Harvey that hit the southern U.S. three years ago, we know that three-quarters of the economic damages due to Hurricane Harvey were because it was supersized by human-induced climate change. We can put numbers on these events. We can show the human fingerprint in almost every part of the world. But at this point, scientists sort of feel like they're tapping the mic, asking if it's on and if anyone's listening.
1: Okay, let, let me uh, use this word, Anthropocene. Simon Lewis, you study it. Can you talk to us about what that is and what this report tells you about it?
0: Well, the idea of the Anthropocene is that humans have become a force of nature, that what we do matters on a planetary scale. So the new IPCC report really emphasizes that we are changing the Earth's climate and the Earth's ecosystems. And there's some really shocking statistics in there. We've raised atmospheric carbon dioxide concentrations to levels that are higher than at rates about two up to two million years ago and the temperatures now, the annual average temperature of the globe is at its highest level for 125,000 years. So what we're doing is changing the Earth on a geological timescale. To put that into context, you know, we, uh, there were no anatomically modern humans, no humans that looked like you and I two million years ago and 125,000 years ago when temperatures were this high We were hanging out with the Neanderthals, we're really making dramatic changes to the climate and we need to get carbon dioxide emissions and other greenhouse gas emissions down to zero to stabilise the climate. And we can only do that by ending fossil fuel use and really moving our societies and our lives to be powered by renewable, renewable energy.
1: And we know that uh, the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said that this sounds the death knell for fossil fuels. And, and Catherine, I wanted to ask you in that context: when you see uh, a Canadian government investing in a pipeline that will expand the capacity to send um, to send fossil fuels through pipelines for export, and the government defending it by saying it's that will be used to pay for the transition, how do you see that in the context of this report?
2: It illustrates the tension that we have in modern society in that every aspect of our lives was built on fossil fuels. We are not talking about a small change. We're not talking about replacing the chemicals that we use in spray cans as we did when the ozone hole was was discovered by scientists. We're talking about altering the entire basis of our economy, but we have to do it because what's at stake is us. The planet will survive. It will still be orbiting the sun long after we're gone. The question is, what will happen to our civilization? And today, we stand at a crossroads. And the report is very clear. The choice is up to us. We don't need more science telling us it's real and it's us. What we need to understand is it's affecting us here and now today in ways that we can quantify and even put dollar signs on. And the choice of our future is up to us. Now is the time to make that choice.
1: And what is the choice when it comes to things like that pipeline? The choice is, are we going to increase the infrastructure that continues to provide fossil fuels
2: in the future? So we are not only saying that we are still using them today, but if we build out more infrastructure that guarantees it will be continued to use in the future, that means that we're guaranteeing more carbon emissions in the future.
1: Simon Lewis, there have been six IPCC reports and and countless other studies that have painted this picture for us over decades. Does science make a difference when it comes to moving policy? And and does it sometimes feel like scientists like you are are just screaming into the void?
0: Uh, Science is a, a necessity, but it's not sufficient. There needs to be political action. And I'm not a political scientist, but as I see it is that people, the governments respond to pressure, and there's pressure from the fossil fuel industry to keep extracting. And there has to be a larger pressure from people to say, no, we want something a different way. The clamor has to come from millions of people saying, this is not acceptable, we need to move. And I think that people are seeing this when you see the heat wave in Canada, the floods in Germany, the fires in Greece, that we're kind of realizing now that all of our cities and towns that we live in, they were built over centuries and decades to withstand a given climate. And that given climate is now the past. We're into a new phase. So we're gonna have to have some adaptation, some changes to the way we live to keep living in these places. But we're also going to have to drive down emissions right down to zero as fast as possible to, because there are limits to that adaptation there are limits to how things can, can change in a given city or town and i think that's becoming clear to more and more
1: people now um, climate activist Greta Thunberg responded to the report i, I just want you to listen to, to what she said
0: it doesn't say you have to do this and then you have to do this it doesn't provide us with s- such solutions or tell us that you need to do this and uh, that's up for us we are the ones who need to take To take the decisions and we are the ones who need to be brave and ask the the difficult questions to ourselves like what do we value Um, are we ready to take action to to ensure future and present living conditions so i hope that this can be a wake-up call and that it really gives perspective and that it once again can be a reminder that the climate crisis has not gone away
1: Now, Greta Thunberg woke up a long time ago. Simon Lewis, do you think that this report will serve as a wake-up call to others?
0: I hope so, and I think it joins the impacts of devastating climate change that we're seeing on our TV screens this summer. And as we move to a time of going to the UN climate talks, which are hosted in Glasgow by the UK government, the pressure is on, the pressure is on, government leaders and business leaders to move things and move the dial fast on emissions. Because another eight years and another report, we will have lost the window to keep 1.5 degrees C warming as possible. And we really need to get those emissions bent down, get that curve bent down to be able to stabilize the climate because we need to get emissions right down to zero to stabilize the climate system. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know.
2: Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: So what would you see as a good outcome from the summit? Uh,
0: a good outcome from the summit would be the G20 nations, which are around 80% of all global emissions, having concrete and detailed plans about how they will get emissions down this decade, not kicking it down the line to 2050 or, or later.
1: Catherine Hayhoe, what do you think are the biggest barriers to making that outcome a reality? We often
2: think that a government, a prime minister, a CEO, a celebrity will save us. But the reality is it's up to us. The world has changed before. It has changed in very significant ways. Our society has changed radically from societies that were built on slavery, on not allowing women to vote, on uh, lack of access to political systems and to resources And the reason why we've changed in the past is when ordinary people decided the world can and must be different and use their voices to advocate for change. So, yes, our governments need to act. Yes, our corporations need to act. Every single one of us, no matter who we are, no matter where we work, where we go to school, where we live, we all have a responsibility to use our voices to call for and to advocate for the change we need. Because, again, it's not about saving the
1: planet. It's about saving us. Well, then what, what can Canada bring to Glasgow? You're Canadian, and what, and what would you like to see from this government?
2: Absolutely. Each country needs to step up. In Canada, people often say, well, we're just such a you know, small country population-wise. We're just a tiny part of the problem. Why do we matter? Well, on the list of top 10 cumulative carbon emissions emitters, the people who've produced the most heat-trapping gases since the dawn of the industrial era, we are number nine. We have, per person, some of the highest per capita emissions in the world. So we can make a difference both materially in terms of our reductions, and, of course, we do have a price on carbon. Our price on carbon is increasing. That is going to help to bring our, our reductions down. But we need to do everything we can to meet those targets and to also lead by example to show others that it can and it is possible.
1: Now, there is a lot at stake in Glasgow, and we're certainly feeling the heat in Canada this summer. I'm in Toronto right now, but I live in Vancouver, and I live through that extreme heat wave, the wildfires that are burning now. If you remember last month, the village of Lytton in BC set three temperature records in a row, topped out at over 49 degrees Celsius before it just was burned down by fire. Uh, The current spoke with one of the people who had to leave Lytton.
0: People in Canada and in B.C. feel like they're living in a temperate climate, and it has been a temperate climate. This is a warning. We're the canary in the coal mine. Climate change is happening now. It's happening fast, and things are, it's just, that's that's the lesson from this. Everything seems the same and seems fine until it
2: changes in an instant and everything's gone.
1: And that was Gordon Murray of Lytton, B.C. He lost everything in that fire. Sam Lewis, what does, that, what, what, does what happened in Lytton tell you about climate change?
0: Uh, it tells me that it will not be this smooth process that we sometimes expect it to be. I mean, those records in Lytton were shattered and they shocked everyone. But future shocks are coming our way. Maybe not for that town, but... Maybe somewhere else, because as we add carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, traps more heat, there's more energy, and there'll be greater heat waves that are more extreme going forward and extreme rainfall events. And these are coming down the pipeline unless we get emissions down and down fast.
1: There, there's a little bit more tape I want to play. Catherine Hayhoe, recently on The Current, we spoke with Eleni Miravili, I hope I'm saying that correctly, the newly named chief heat officer in Athens, Greece. She told us what it was like living in a city that was approaching 50 degrees and being threatened by wildfires.
2: I went outside and met a friend in a, in a cafe. Uh, we decided to go like, after 8 in the afternoon, hoping that the temperatures would, have,
1: would be a little bit... Uh, less pressing, it was still extremely hot. But as we sat there at the cafe and and chatted, there was ash that was falling on us, and the skies were um, had these gray and red clouds. It
2: feels really apocalyptic. It it feels horrible. And last night, at some point, both my husband and I we woke up in the middle of the night because we couldn't breathe from the smoke. I actually had to wear a mask to to go back to sleep because I felt that I uh, my my lungs were burning.
1: The fires have gotten worse since then. Thousands of people have evacuated the islands in the face of hundreds of fires in Greece. Turkey is going through the same. Eleni also said she was afraid that cities like Athens will become unlivable in the future. Catherine, what goes through your mind when you watch what's happening in Greece?
2: Sorrow. When you see people being affected in such dramatic ways, whether it's in British Columbia, whether it's in Greece, whether it's the massive flooding they experienced in Germany at the same time. Climate change, with climate change, we have three choices. We can reduce our emissions as much as possible, as soon as possible. We can prepare to adapt to the impacts that we can no longer avoid because some of them are already here today, or we can suffer. And the faster we cut our carbon, the less adaptation is required and the less suffering it will be.
1: Do you think adaptation is realistic in places like Athens when, when the, we hear people saying it could become unlivable? Is there a way to still live there?
2: We can adapt our cities. Um, there are limits, though. Again, that's why we must mitigate. Some adaptation is possible, and with cities, for example, reducing the urban heat island effect can bring temperatures down. Also, looking at uh, clearing, clearing areas to create wildfire breaks looking at where we build and where we develop, there are smart things that we can do to make our cities cooler, to make them more flood-resistant, to secure our water supplies, but we will not be able to do sufficient adaptation. There is no way that we can do so if we continue our dependence on fossil fuels. We must figure out new, clean ways to get energy, many of which are already in our backyards today. We must accelerate that transition because the faster we do so, the less suffering there will be.
1: I, I just want to talk for a second about um, the notion of despair. You read a report like this as an everyday person, and you you think, "Oh my goodness, there's nothing more I can do about this. That this is the end. I'm just not. I'm not going to be able to do anything." Simon Lewis, what do you say to people who might react to this in that fashion?
0: Uh, don't don't despair. Get angry and get active. Every extra additional. Bit of warming matters. So what we do matters. So we do need to call for change and act for change. And it is possible to get emissions down. Uh, in the UK, we had early campaigns against uh, coal-fired power stations, and we've reduced our emissions by 44% since 1990, almost exclusively due to moving away from coal and our electricity is now largely produced by renewables. So it is possible to shift the dial, but it requires public pressure. So I would ask people who are concerned to get active.
1: Catherine Hayhoe, you've addressed this already to a degree, but I I want to push you a little bit more on this. Where, Where do you take despair? What do you do with it?
2: Absolutely. Well, I mean, yesterday I woke up to a text from a friend saying I'm sitting in the dark just overcome with despair reading this report. What do I do? What do I say? And that is our response when we actually recognize how serious this is, what's at stake, how imminent and how real it is. That fear can wake us up. It serves a purpose. It shows us we have a problem. But fear can paralyze us. If we don't know what to do about it, what are we supposed to do? Our natural human defense is just to pull the blanket back up over our head. We have to recognize that each one of us can truly make a difference. You don't have to be a politician or a CEO or the leader of an organization to make a difference. Every single one of us can by using our voices. And I encourage people to find an organization of like-minded people. There, I'm part of an organization called Science Moms, I'm also part of a lot of faith-based organizations. There's organizations that support the just transition, that support conservation of nature. There's all kinds of organizations, even for winter athletes, where people are getting together and they're saying, because of who I am, Mm -hmm. I care about climate action, and we are going to raise our voices to affect change in our communities, in our province, in our country, and the world. So take action, use your voice, get together with like-minded people, because as Greta Thunberg says, Don't look for hope, act.
1: And when you act, hope is everywhere. All right, that is a good place to leave it at. I thank you both for your time. Thank you. Thanks very much. Simon Lewis is a professor of global change science at University College London. Catherine Hayhoe is an atmospheric scientist and a professor in the Department of Political Science at Texas Tech University. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.